Hi there. Thank you for choosing to listen to this sermon. We pray that God would use this as an added resource to benefit you in conjunction with you belonging to a local church near you. This sermon was preached at Central Baptist Church Pretoria. 130 years of believers loving God, caring for one another and impacting the world. Well friends, we now come to the high point of worship in our service. Our service is filled with elements of worship. We read the word, uh, we um, he, we pray the word, uh, Jobu did that for us. We see the word in the ordinance of the Lord's table. Later we will see the word in the ordinance of baptism. We sing the word, but now we come to the point where we sit underneath the teaching of God's word. The passage of scripture that I will be reading and teaching from can be found in 1 Timothy chapter 3 that is in the New Testament. It is after Genesis, it is before Revelation, it's in that in-between section toward the end. Uh, you can find that, 1 Timothy chapter 3. I'll read that in a moment. And just to remind you that, well, this isn't an intellectual exercise, preaching, that's my part, nor is it an intellectual exercise, sitting under the teaching of God's word, that's your part. This is a matter of spiritual um, a spiritual act. And so even as we come to God's word now, let's bow our heads and pray to Almighty God. Father God, your word very clearly says that men are like grass and our glories are like the flowers of the field. Grass withers, flowers fall. We will not last for long. But the word of the Lord stands forever. And this morning, Lord God, we stand upon your word. It is Without error, it is sufficient for all matters of life and for godliness, and it can be understood. And so we ask by your Spirit, would you teach us your word, that we might not just believe it, Lord God, but become doers of your word, live by it, transformed lives, which bring much praise and glory to our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. And we pray this in the power of the Spirit and to the glory of the Father that is in heaven. Amen. Amen. Well, uh, the passage of Scripture is 1 Timothy chapter 3, not the whole chapter, just the last few verses, verse 14 to verse 16, verse 14 to verse 16. Hear the word of God. I am hoping to come to you soon. I write these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and support of the truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He is manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. Just so far, in the reading of God's word, amen. The big idea this morning is confess Christ, the only hope, in life and death. Confess Christ, the only life, your only life in hope, uh, your only hope in life and death. And the way we're going to work through the passage is in just two parts. 
The first two verses, verse 14 and verse 15, go together. And then the last verse, verse 16, stands by itself. The first point that I'm going to present to you is that the church proclaims the word of God. And the second point, which I'm going to present to you, is that the church professes the Son of God. Two points, one idea, confess Christ. Let's uh, put those first two verses near together and close in our mind's eye and address them to begin with. Let me read verse 14 and verse 15 again. Maybe to say that the, the big idea here is that we, the church, are to put truth on display And the truth here is those things that relate to conduct that the Apostle Paul wrote of. Here verse 14 and 15. I am hoping, Paul writes, to come to you soon. I write these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and a support of the truth. Just that far. Uh, Not last week, last week I was in Zambia, but the week before, radio ads started the Christmas season. You might have noticed that the Christmas season is in full swing. Liesl went to the Grove Shopping Center uh, last week. She came back and reported that the Christmas decorations are of a higher quality than Menland, which is just down the road from us. She's very disappointed. We're now going to have to drive to the Grove to do our shopping. Apparently, it looks beautiful there. Uh, but if you do go to a shopping center, it almost doesn't matter which shopping center you go to. What do you hear in the background? Well, they've started to play Boney M and... Uh, Mariah Carey and whatever Josh Groban's best and most famous Christmas album. Uh, The reality is the festive season is in full swing and shops are advertising to get you to spend your hard-earned rands and your Christmas bonuses in their shops. So two weeks ago, I, I was pulling out of our driveway And I was listening to the radio, I tuned into 702, that's what I can remember. I can't remember which shop it was, it it might have been Woolies, it might have been Checkers, it might have been Spa, it doesn't really matter. They all kind of do a similar thing this time of year. A a presenter with little bells going in the background asked in a poignant voice, in a very philosophical voice, what is the meaning of Christmas? Christmas. I'm a pastor, so obviously I tuned in immediately. Like, are they going to get this vaguely right, or are they going to get this absolutely wrong? I I didn't have great expectations. This is the answer that that philosophical voice gave as I drove into church. Maybe you think Christmas is about the food that you're going to be eating. He then went on to ask the question, maybe you think that Christmas is about spending time with family. Maybe you think that Christmas is about the gifts under the Christmas tree. 
And then he drew, and he actually gave quite a few other examples. I mean, you might add whatever you like. Maybe you think Christmas is about Boxing Day test cricket um, the day after. Uh, But he brought all of these things together, and he gave an answer. He said that Christmas is actually about all of these things. It's about your family, and it's about the food, and it is about the gifts, and maybe it's about cricket too. In reality, that advert completely missed the point of Christmas. And I'm hoping that as we look at 1 Timothy chapter 3, we will see something that we as a church, as Arcadia, as Central Baptist Church Pretoria, are to do this festive season as we realize what this season is actually about. And firstly, the church is to proclaim the word of God. Proclaim the word of God. We read at the beginning of verse 14, I'm hoping to come to you soon. And we wonder, well, who is this I? The answer is given for us at the beginning of 1 Timothy chapter 1 verse 1. It's Paul. Paul is the apostle. He is the writer of this letter. And Paul says that, I am hoping to come. And you wonder then, where is Paul hoping to come to? And the answer is in chapter 1, verse 3 of this letter. Paul is writing to a man in a city called Ephesus. Ephesus is a city in Asia Minor. And Paul, the apostle, is hoping to come there soon. And he says, I'm hoping to come to you And the last question is, well, who's the who? We've already done chapter 1, verse 1, chapter 1, verse 3. In the middle is chapter 1, verse 2, and it answers the you who Paul is hoping to come to. And the answer is his young protege, Timothy, his son in the faith, after whom this letter is written. There is then a conjunction, a joining word. It stands as a contrast. He says, but... In other words, something might go wrong, but I'm wanting to come to you, but I write these things to you so that. Well, what things? What things is Paul referring to in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 14? And the answer to that question is everything that he's been speaking about so far in the letter. In particular, in chapter 2 from verse 1 to 15, Paul was speaking how believers are to conduct themselves in the worship service. And even more particularly, how men are to pray and how women are to keep silent. In chapter 3 from verse 1 to verse 7, Paul gives the qualifications for those who will serve as elders, for those who will serve as pastors, for those who will serve as overseers in the church. And then from verse 8 through to verse 13, Paul gives the qualifications for those who will serve as deacons in the church. And so when Paul says, I write these things, he's talking about instructions for how we worship and instructions for how the church is governed, how the church operates. He says, I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, if I can't come to you as quickly as I hope, you might know, that word know there is in the perfect tense, that you might know that you know that you know how one ought to behave 
in the household of God. This really is the controlling verse in the whole of 1 Timothy. Uh, Paul writes so that the church, Timothy in particular, the church at Ephesus generally, and we, the broader recipients of God's word, might know how we are to behave, how we are to conduct ourselves in the church, which is described as the household of God. Amana notia, the church is a family. It is filled with sons and daughters of the house and fathers and mothers of the house. Paul, in other places of scripture, speaks to this effect. In the book of Titus, he says that Titus is to treat older men like fathers and younger men like brothers. We are a family. If you look around, you might notice that we are a very mixed box of smarties. Every color of the smarty box is represented here this morning. And we are different ages all over the place, different genders. There is so much diversity which is represented in this household. And yet, brothers and sisters, we are family one with another. That's why when we see each other, uh, we smile and we shake hands. The Bible would say we greet one another with a holy kiss, but I'm okay with just a hug. (laughs) Um, but, But we treat one another as family. Well, there's house rules in the Penrith family, and there's house rules in the household of the family of God in Ephesus, just like there are house rules in the church of Central Baptist Church in Arcadia. Now he says, listen here, I I want you to know, and I've written these things so that you might know how to behave in this household of God. And then he goes and describes it as the church of the living God. That word church in the Greek is ecclesia. Um, What that word really means, it's it's not a technical word, the word church. It doesn't mean what we think of today, a church, those who gather on a Sunday who take up membership with Central Baptist Church. No, the idea here of Ecclesia is those who have been called out, it's the called out ones, those who have been called out from the world and have been given to Jesus Christ by God the Father. It is the gathering of those who believe. And the church in Ephesus are described as the church of the living God. That's to put them in stark contrast to all the false religions and idol worship which is happening around them, which Paul begins to deal with in chapter 4 from verse 1 to 7 and then to the end of the chapter. We are the gathered ones. We are the called out ones and we serve the one God, the creator of the heavens and the earth. In him is life and that life can set us free. And then it describes this church. It describes this church as a pillar and it describes this church as a support, a pillar and a support. Now, the idea of pillar, I mean, we still have pillars. We have pillars even in this church. If you go downstairs into our basement, you'll see that uh, the first floor of Central Baptist Church is held up by a series of pillars. And that's exactly what Paul is referring to in terms of its construction um, look. But, but 
a pillar in a temple, in a house of God, in a church, at a gathering at the Temple Mount in Jerusalem, served a very particular purpose. Upon the pillar, um, and some temples would have many pillars, uh, people, if there was an important notice that needed to go out, that notice would be attached to the pillar. The pillar was the place that if the emperor wanted the citizens of that city to know anything, uh, that promulgation would be attached to the pillar so that it could be seen by all. He he says that we are like a pillar. Uh, We're standing, the church gathered, and attached to us is a notice. He then gives a second metaphor, a second description of the church, and he describes it as a support or a buttress. Again, this is a picture which comes from construction. A buttress is a beam which holds something up. Around my house, uh, I have uh, fibercrete walls on the one side, I have uh, brick walls on the other side, But against both of those walls, there are supports. On the fibercrete side, because I think we're a bit waterlogged, and so the fibercrete must have been falling over at some stage, and so uh, support beams have been put in place, buttresses have been put in place. And on the other side, even though it is built in brick, there are uh, structures that make sure that this wall will stand firm. Paul describes us as a pillar on the one side and as a buttress on the other side. Let me explain what he means by those two metaphors. In terms of us being a pillar, we need to understand that we do not create truth because he says we are a pillar of the truth. We don't create truth, but friends, the church of the living God, we, the gathered ones, the called out ones, display truth to a watching world. And then that second metaphor, the idea of a support or a buttress, in much the same way, the church doesn't generate truth, but we defend against attacks on the truth so that the wall doesn't fall down. We have a purpose, and that purpose is in the plural, and it's given to the church gathered. In other words, each and every single one of us owns this purpose, not your pastor who stands at the front and preaches on a Sunday, but we, the gathered church, are a pillar and a support. Now, he says we are a pillar and a support of the truth, and the question that we must ask ourselves is what is truth. The answer to that in scripture is that God is truth. Truth is a characteristic of God's nature. Truth is a quality of God's being. Truth is a perfection of God's person. God is true in all that he does. And God is consistent within himself. And so, everything that God has revealed in his word matches up to reality. It is truth. The word of God reveals God the Father of truth in John chapter 14 verse 17. In 1 Timothy chapter 3 verse 15, uh, in, sorry, in Uh, John chapter 14 verse 17, God the Holy Spirit is revealed as the spirit of truth. 
And in John chapter 14, verse 6, God the Son is revealed as being the way, the truth, and the life. God is truth in the same way that God is holy or God is love. God is truth, and we, his church, are the pillar and support of that truth. In 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 15, we have a mandate for the church to proclaim and to defend truth. And that mandate goes to each and every one of us. And there are two truths that this text explicitly calls us to proclaim and defend. The first is the written truth. The written truth. Paul says, I write these things that you may know. I write the word of God, the apostles' teaching, scripture, the 66 books of the Bible written by 40 authors over 1,500 years in three languages and on three continents. This is the word of God and this is truth that we are to proclaim and we are to defend. In John chapter 17, verse 17, Jesus Christ says, your word is true. Now the second truth, that we are a pillar and a support to, is the revealed truth. The revealed truth. And the reason why I say the second truth is a revealed truth is because in verse 16 we read that indeed we confess, we profess, we proclaim a mystery of godliness and it says he there is a he that the church is to proclaim there is a he that the church is to profess and this he is none other than the son of god the word of god jesus christ in john chapter 14 verse 6 jesus says i am the way the truth and the life so firstly The church proclaims the word of God. Our second point in verse 16 is that the church professes the son of God. Let's read verse 16 together and then I'll explain its meaning and apply. It says, great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifest in flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. Just so far in the reading of his word. And that is an amen passage. This is one of the great and glorious passages of Scripture. Even as we read it, it says we confess. The the idea here is we profess. We hold fast to. This is a creed, a confession of the early church. All who are orthodox believe these words. All who are Christian profess these words. It seems as we read it that it has a certain cadence to it, a certain rhythm to it. It may well be that Paul has lifted a hymn that the early church sang and this is a hymn that he has put into this text. He says this is what we confess and it is a mystery of godliness. And when you read the word mystery, 
Don't think Hardy Boys or Nancy Drew. The word mystery in Scripture simply means something which was once hidden in the past but has now been revealed in the present. So the question is, what was hidden once in the past that has been revealed in the present? And it's not, the answer is not a what. The answer is a who. It's a he. Now some of you, if you've got a King James Bible, will read their God. Um, in some other translations, it might read um, God he or God who was manifest. The reason for that is that there's a slight variation in various different Greek manuscripts. I'm fairly confident, in fact I'm very confident, that the correct reading of this text is he was manifest in the flesh. Because the focus here isn't on the deity of Christ, but rather on the humanity of Christ, on the incarnation of Christ, that Jesus Christ came into this world. And what we read as we hit each one of these uh, statements is six truths about Jesus Christ. The first truth, it relates to the Son has been revealed. The Son has been revealed. It says, He was manifest in the flesh. That word manifest is, uh, is just a complicated word to say that He appeared, that He was seen. Uh, his disciples describe it elsewhere in Scripture that they heard Him, that they saw Him, that they touched Him. Uh, they, they knew Jesus Christ. He really came into the world. God, who in eternity past was worshipped by angels in heaven's glory above, became flesh in a babe in Bethlehem. He was manifest in flesh. Uh, John, the apostle, begins his gospel message by making this point. It talks about we, no one has ever seen God who is invisible. But we who have seen Jesus Christ have beheld his glory. The glory as the only God. The darling of heaven came and lived as one of us. He was manifest in the flesh. The son was revealed. The second part of this chorus is the son is to be trusted. The son is to be trusted. It says he was vindicated by the spirit. He was vindicated by the spirit. That word vindicated elsewhere, in fact almost everywhere else in scripture, is translated as justified. And we know that word justified. It's very closely associated with the word righteous. Um, but it's a, a legal term. It's the idea of being declared righteous. Jesus Christ was declared to be something. And the question is, when was Jesus Christ declared and what happened after he was manifest in the flesh? And the answer is that Jesus bled and died for the sins of mankind. But he was vindicated. He, he was declared righteous. When did that happen? It happened at his resurrection. A declared righteousness. The resurrection was a declared verdict that Jesus is indeed the Holy One of God and that his sacrifice was pleasing to the Father. And he was declared by the Spirit. 
the Holy Spirit was involved in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, as was the Father, as was Jesus himself. In parts of Scripture, it says that Jesus was raised to life by the Father. In other parts of Scripture, uh, this one in particular, we read that the Holy Spirit is the one who vindicated Jesus. Jesus says of himself, no one, uh, I do not uh, lay down my life, I, I lay down my life in order to raise it up. Um, Jesus Christ raised himself to life. But here we get the idea that this son, this he, whom the church is the pillar and the support to proclaim, this he is to be trusted because he has been vindicated by none other than God himself. Well, not only that, the son is to be witnessed. Well, the son has been witnessed. It says seen by the angels. More often than not, when we talk about the witnesses, we talk about the woman who identified Jesus on the day on which he was raised from the dead on that Sunday morning. Or when we talk about the witnesses, we talk about the disciples to whom Jesus appeared in that upper room, together with Thomas the next week. Or when we speak about the witnesses, we talk about the apostles that Jesus said, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to all the ends of the earth. But yeah, the text is that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who dwelt in eternity past with God and was worshipped by the angels in heaven, upon his resurrection, he was witnessed by angels, and that makes sense. Because angels were involved in Jesus' life the whole time on earth. When he was born, angels appeared to the shepherds. When Jesus was in the desert and uh, 40 days without food and water, it was angels who came and witnessed to him. In Gethsemane, as he weeps, it is an angel that, that witnesses to him. Uh, on the cross, it is stark contrast as for three hours the, the sun is darkened and Jesus Christ cries out, my Lord, my God, why have you forsaken me? But at his resurrection, angels were there. As those women came, it was angels that told him, why are you looking for Jesus? He is not here, he has risen. It is angels that declare to the apostles after Jesus ascends into heaven that they are to go to Jerusalem and wait for him there or wait for the promise of the Holy Spirit there. It says in our text that Jesus was manifest, that he came, that he came incarnate in flesh, that Jesus was vindicated, that he rose from the grave and that Jesus was seen by angels. The, the fourth line, fourth refrain in this chorus is that the Son is to be proclaimed. It says proclaimed among the nations. We know that Jesus told his apostles to proclaim the good news of the gospel, of his death and of his resurrection to all nations beginning in Jerusalem. That was Jesus' words to his apostles. And the whole of the book of Acts tells that story beginning in Jerusalem 
the good news of Jesus Christ is proclaimed. And then as persecution comes on the church and the church is squeezed out of Jerusalem into the Judean and Sumerian countryside, the good news of the gospel is proclaimed. And then as the apostle Paul is raised up, the good news of the gospel goes to Gentiles just like you and me. And then it goes to all the ends of the earth until in Acts chapter 28, it comes to Rome to the ends of the earth. The bottom line is the Son is to be proclaimed. And we who are the church, the pillar and the support of truth are to make this proclamation known that Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior, that his death covers sin and that his resurrection demonstrates that God has accepted the payment his son has made and that all men everywhere must repent for the forgiveness of their sins. The fifth refrain in this chorus relates to the son must be believed. It says, believed on in the world. Friends, this idea of belief is related to those words faith and repentance. We must put our faith and our trust in Jesus Christ as our Lord and our Savior. We must repent of our sin, turn away from our sin, and cast ourselves upon Jesus Christ that we might live. And this must happen in all the world. I'm reminded of Jesus' great commission that he gave to his disciples to go and make disciples of all nations, of all nations. Friends, that means that We need to see disciples in the Zulu nation and in the Kosa nation. And we need to see disciples in the Afrikaner nation and in the English nation. It doesn't matter what nation you represent here this morning. It is God's intent to draw out for himself from every tribe, nation, and tongue disciples that will follow Jesus and worship him in spirit and in truth. The sixth refrain And the last one is that the son is to be exalted. The son is to be exalted. It says taken up in glory. We don't often dwell on this except in Easter, the humiliation of Christ. In actual fact, uh, most of our understanding of the nativity play is informed um, by a very uh, surgical and clinical and clean demonstration of Jesus Christ's entry into this world, but it would not have been like that. Anybody that has been around the birthing process knows that it is a mess, and it had to happen in a stable filled with animals all around it. It would have been a smelly affair that the Son of God, who had been worshipped by angels for eternity past, since their creation and before that, had been in oneness and union with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit, came into this fallen world in pain and with crying and with travail. Everything about Jesus' life was a condescension. Condescension means that he came from up here and he came to down here where you and I live. And he experienced true humiliation. God, the creator of the heavens and the earth, subjected to what you and I are subjected to every single day. It says that that didn't happen forever. 
No, after his death and after his resurrection, 40 days later, 10 days later, Jesus Christ ascended into heaven. I got that completely the wrong way around. 40 days after his resurrection, Jesus Christ ascended into heaven. He was witnessed by his disciples. He was witnessed by 400 people at once. He was seen by angels. And then as he ascended into heaven, he entered into his eternal glory, the beginning of the coronation of the king. Jesus Christ is presently seated at the right hand of God on high. Well, how do we apply these two points? That we, the church, are the pillar and support of the truth, that the church is to proclaim the word of God and that the church is to profess the son of God. If you are a reader, I'd like to encourage you to go and find a book. You can find it online. It's for free. If you type in monogism, uh, you'll find a website and on that, John Owen, the glory of Christ. John Owen, the glory of Christ. In that book, I I wish I could quote it all to you, but I can't. But let me quote what John Owen says on this point. Is Christ glorious, believer, in your eyes? Do you see the Father in him? Or by seeing of him, are you determined to contemplate daily on the wisdom, the love, the grace, the goodness, the holiness, and the righteousness of God as revealing and manifesting themselves in him? Do you sufficiently consider that the immediate vision of his glory in heaven will be our everlasting blessedness? Does the imperfect view which you have of him now, increase your desire for perfect sight in heaven above. Our text says that he was taken up into glory. That babe of heaven so meek and mild, the lamb that was slain, the man of sorrows is the lion of the tribe of Judah. He has ascended into glory on high where angels worship him forever and ever and one day soon you will worship him forever and ever too. Friends, the application of this text is start worshiping now. Start singing praise and worship to Jesus Christ, the glorified son of God now. Unbelievers in the room This morning, John Owen again writes in the glory of Christ, no man shall ever behold the glory of Christ by sight year after who does not by some measure behold it by faith year in this world. Let me say that again and that should strike fear into your soul If you are an unbeliever, no man shall ever behold the glory of Christ in the year after who does not by some measure behold it by faith in this world now. Friends, our text says that he was manifest in the flesh. That refers to the incarnation of Jesus. God created the heavens and the earth in untested perfection. 
but man sinned. You have sinned and become separated from a God who is holy, holy, holy. Jesus is God's planned remedy for your predicament. Jesus, the Son of God, is a sufficient substitute to propitiate the wrath of God against your sin. Jesus, the Son of Man, is an appropriate substitute to atone for your sin which you have committed against God. And Jesus has been accepted by God. His sacrifice was well-pleasing to the Father because Jesus was raised from the dead. He was vindicated by the Spirit, our text says. That refers to the resurrection of Jesus. Satan could not keep him. Hell had no hold over him. He was raised to life and now offers freely life to all who will call on his name. To all who will come to him, he will grant life. How can you come to Jesus Christ? Our text says he was believed on in the world. And this refers to how sinners come to salvation. To all who receive him, who believe in his name, he will give the right to be called sons of God. Believe in the name of Jesus. Do it right now. Do so at once. Do not delay. Do not allow salvation to pass you by. Jesus, the Son of God, bled and died for your sin. Put your faith and your trust in him. On the radio two weeks ago, I heard the question, what is the meaning of Christmas? And I heard answers like food and like family and like trees and like gifts and like relaxing. But friends, that is not the answer to what is the meaning of Christmas. You need Jesus more than festive cheer. He is the reason for the season. Confess Jesus, the only hope in life and death. Amen. Let's close in a word of prayer. Father God, as many as call upon your name will be saved. And so, Holy Spirit, we ask, draw men to yourself. Open eyes that they might see Jesus, their need for Jesus, and cast them, themselves upon him. Grant them faith and grant them repentance that they might live. And for we who are in Christ, build us up in this most holy faith that this festive season and in every season, in and out of season, we might proclaim from the word of God the person of the Son of God that all the world might hear of his beauty and his splendor and his grace. These things we pray in the wonderful name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon. Find out more about Central Baptist Church at www.central.org.za.